morning to everyone. Let's turn our eyes to the screen and let's pray together as is our custom, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> Keep going, good. <clears throat> and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a passage of scripture that through the years we have been through, oh, I don't know, probably a dozen, 15 times or more, different perspectives looking at the life of Elijah. And it has taken on new significance to me over the past few months. As we have talked about fullness, we've talked about fellow travelers, um, you know, and all that that entails. I have had a, just a strong sense because of just what people are praying or asking for prayer about that there are people that are tired and you say, pastor, people are always tired. Well, not, not always, but sometimes there are epidemics of fatigue. We've talked about the wise words of Daniel that were given to him by the Lord, that the job of the antichrist is to wear out the saints of the Most High. And I don't mean by that that Antichrist, the Antichrist, is alive and well today. He may be. But we do know from the Scripture that not only is there the Antichrist, but there are false teachers of Antichrist that will precede him. And there is a false spirit of Antichrist that has always been in the world. So I don't think it should take any of us by surprise to understand that us in our lives, our homes, our ministry, our families, everything, the enemy wants to wear us down. He wants to wear us out. Um, we know what it's like to be sick. We know what it's like to be tired. Now, the first time this phrase sick and tired was used, it was way back and somebody would say something like, I'm, I've grown weary, or they might be saying, I'm bored with something. But it's kind of taken on a little oomph in the past couple of centuries. And somebody describes an, a, a situation of hopelessness as being sick and tired. They may or may not be physically sick, but it carries with it the idea of hopelessness. And then back in the middle of the 20th century, a politician or, well, really someone that was fighting for a political cause, I don't think she was a politician herself, she, she, made, she made this famous and it became a statement on steroids when she said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And we all have a place that we have felt what it's like to be sick and tired. We may have been to the point where we feel like it's sick and tired of being sick and tired. I think that's as good a phrase as any to describe Elijah's life 
and we're going to read very familiar passage of scripture and we're taking just a snapshot from the maybe the forward middle of his life we we don't have the time to put it in context as well as we would like but this was something that it's a period of time very easy to misunderstand i'll tell you this about about elijah i don't know of anybody that was more misunderstood more easily judged misjudged perhaps more easily made fun of than Elijah and this incident. Now, Thomas runs a close second. Thomas will always be known as Doubting Thomas, even though he showed more bravery than most of the disciples during his ministry with Jesus. Uh, on at least a couple occasions, he was ready to go with Jesus and die with him. Um, but we only remember him for that moment when he doubted. And, uh, you know, we, you know, when we get to heaven, I wouldn't be surprised if some people were trying to sell Doubting Thomas t-shirts, you know. He had a moment of doubt, but there was a lot more to it than that. Same with Elijah. Charles Spurgeon said, Elijah, the great man of God that killed 850 prophets, is now frightened by a woman. Boy, that was so politically incorrect in our day. Uh, but in Spurgeon's day, women didn't own property in England for the most part. Women weren't in politics. Women, you didn't think of women as being powerful. And so it was easy for somebody like Spurgeon to say, yeah, when you, when you get discouraged, you're even scared of a woman. But we all know women we ought to be afraid of. <laughs> and uh, and, and that, there's no political attachment to that. That's just the way it is. What I'm saying is I know of nobody that was kind of laughed at and chuckled at and made fun of more than Elijah in this moment of depression and despair. But I know a few people that I would have just more respect, honor, and maybe even fear in meeting him face to face. We're going to learn some things about de depression, how it comes and what it does. Let's begin in chapter 1 of 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And we're going to talk about that everything in just a moment. But this is right after the battle at Mount Carmel where the fire comes down from heaven and Elijah, uh, with some measure of help, kills 850 false prophets. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more so if by about this time tomorrow I do not make your life like the life of one of them. Now this is one of the greatest victory moments Elijah has ever known. The heavens have been stopped for three and a half years. Rain has come. The fire of God has come. The people have said, The Lord, He is God. She says, but by this time tomorrow, you will be as dead as my prophets. Now, you got to remember why Jezebel was so upset. She had completely redone the government of Israel. And these 850 prophets sat in her council chambers. They lived in the palace. 
They were advisors. They were baby killers. They were bail worshipers. And she had control of everything. And now almost her entire court is wiped out. But she still has power. And he was afraid and got up and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked for himself to die. Now that's a powerful statement. Here's a man that stops nature in its tracks. Here's a man that looses nature. And now his request is, please let me die. Enough now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down, oh, and I, I don't mean to keep interrupting myself, but um, when he says, I'm no better than my father's, the, the, I think what he was after here is he thought this miracle was of such magnitude. God was doing something so profound in Israel that unlike Israel of the past and unlike the prophets of the past, he was going to tip the scales and things will change. I don't know if he was so brazen as to say they will change under my ministry. But he said, things are going to be different this time. And when he says, I'm no better than my father's, he says, it's like it's always been. It's like it's always been. I'm not doing any better job than they did. Then he lay down and fell asleep under a broom tree. But behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a round loaf of bread baked on hot coals and a pitcher of water. So he ate and drank. Some of us southern preachers suspect a round loaf of bread might have been a huge buttermilk biscuit. I can't prove that. <laughs> but he ate and drank and lay down again. But the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey's too long for you. King James says it beautifully, the journey's too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he journeyed in the strength of that food. This was supernatural. He journeyed in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. This was the mountain where Moses encountered God. Then at Horeb, then he came there to a cave. The Hebrew is pretty definite. It's a definite article um, from, from our perspective. It's saying the cave. Some scholars say it meant the special cave. Some think it was the actual cave where God took Moses and put him in the cleft of a rock. And now Elijah was about to see God at the same place Moses saw God. Now they liked the same kind of places. They both showed up at the Mount of Transfiguration. We know that. Of course, that wasn't their choice. God did that. But he, he came to the cave and spent the night there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And that, that wasn't really a rebuke like, what are you doing here? You know where you're supposed to be. We, we don't believe it's that. It was an invitation to what's going on, Elijah? What is your heart experiencing right now? Aren't you glad we have a God that in our deepest, darkest moments wants us 
to feel liberty to explain what's going on? So what are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of armies or the Lord of hosts. The sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. All of that's so true. And I alone am left. He thought that was true. And they have sought to take my life. That was true. So he said, go stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and powerful wind was tearing out the mountains and breaking the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. I think the best interpretation of the Hebrew is a gentle whispering voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. Elijah, what's going on? Now, something very subtle has happened. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But it's the same question from the Lord. Elijah, what's going on? What's, what's happening in your life? Now, if I'd been Elijah, I would have thought that I would have said, of course, I know myself better. I doubt, seriously, I would have given a better answer than Elijah. But the Lord asked him again, what are you doing here? And I would have said after the voice and the, I mean, the, yeah, after the voice and the wind and the fire and the earthquake, I'd have said nothing. I'm good. I've got everything solved. I, I would have been so fearful. I would have been like the fellow that was in a big crash on a mountainside and cattle truck was overthrown and he was thrown out of his car. The highway patrolman realizing these cattle are dying, he goes up to one cow, sees its legs broken, bam, shoots him in the head, does it to a second, third cow, a couple of horses that were being transport, transported. He walked up to the guy that was thrown out and he said, what's wrong with you? He said, not a thing. I am fine. That's probably what I would have, I would have said, everything's fine. But you know what Elijah did? Same answer. I've been zealous for the Lord, the God of armies, the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they have sought to take my life. Now what we're going to find out is that something very subtle happened. The complaints were the same. And you know what, loved ones, I just want to say this. It's not main part of the message, but sometimes we think we just need questions answered. And sometimes we think we just need the Lord to zap us. But sometimes we still need to ask those questions. We still need to give our complaint, but something needs to happen so that everything shifts. Now this is the shift. The Lord said to him, go 
return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you will anoint Hazel king over Aram. You shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah as prophet, <clears throat> excuse me, in your place. And it shall come about, and you have to read the rest of the story. It was going to take some time. It's going to take some years, but every one of these things would take place just as, as the Lord told him. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death. Jehu was the one that was not king. He was not part of the kingly family. In fact, in northern Israel, in southern Israel, Judah, it's always the house of David. Always, even during the split. But in the northern kingdom, there were like four or five households. Uh, and if you count the short term ones, maybe more than that. Families kept changing. And the house of Omri, Omri was a wicked king. Ahab was his son. And two of Ahab's sons would have some leadership role. His daughter would have influence in Judah. But Jehu was the king that was going to wipe out the house of Omri. And he said, those that escape from Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave. And that's a difficult passage to translate purely into English because of, the, of a tense issue. But God said, I either have left or I will leave or you will see 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, I, I want to do a couple of things today. I want to talk about what caused Elijah to cave in. I, I'm, I'm not doing it critically because every one of us, um, we will cave in if we haven't already, probably. Very few of us have never been in a moment that we haven't caved in. Um, if you say you haven't caved in, it may be that you've caved into pride. And I, I don't know. I'm just saying most of us have caved in. I want to talk about what made him cave in, pun intended, uh, while he was there in the cave. And then I want to talk just mega briefly about what God did to resolve his collapse. And I've given you the outline today almost in manuscript form because this really is about three sermons. It's not going to be that long. But I wanted you to have complete sentences so you can dig wherever Wherever you see the Lord putting down a red flag, it's for you to take it deeper and dig. And then I want to spend the remaining half of the time that we have, I want to talk about the Christian life lessons. We usually have three or four. Today we have eight. Again, the sermon's not going to be that much, I mean, not double length. But that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is how do we live this out? How do we take it away? Let's, let's spend a couple of minutes talking about the brewing storm. What caused Elijah to run for his life, to be afraid, and not just to be afraid, but to be afraid to the point where he said, there's no use trying anymore. I want to die. <clears throat> now, as I said, perhaps no vessel of God has been more analyzed, diagnosed, unintentionally disrespected more than Elijah. Like I said, Thomas is the runner-up probably. His depression is almost as famous as his miracles, maybe just as famous as his miracles. And, and can I just chase one little rabbit? It's just a little one, and it won't take me long to catch it. But I think this is important. 
I am, there, there's a movement today in charismatic churches um, and in churches like ours, um, Pentecostal, that I, I call it prophetology. And um, the prophetic movement is so strong, and I believe in the prophetic movement. Uh, we've, we've had issues that we needed to speak to, and I think we have spoken to those things. But one of the things that I don't like coming from the prophet schools today is the teaching that uh, prophets, it's your gift and you can manifest it the way you want to. For instance, when Elisha called the judgment of God upon those disrespectful people that uh, were ridiculing the prophetic ministry and bear came out of the woods and ate them, uh, the, the prophetology says that he was just in a bad mood. And that's not the way prophets should act. And prophets need to learn you can't, you can't kill people just because you're mad with them. Because when you speak a prophetic word, God will honor the prophetic word. Loved ones, this is not your gift or mine. God is not obligated to do something stupid because we may think we have the title prophet associated with our name. You know, Elijah was just in a bad mood when he called down the fire on 150 soldiers and God had to finally tell him, it's all right, it's all right, now calm down. No, we need to treat these men with the reverence they deserve. And instead of blaming prophetic acts we don't understand on carnal behavior, we need to understand that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think instead of telling Elisha that he needs to get his, his hormones under control and not be mad because somebody called him a bald head, I think we need to understand that God says it is an awesome thing for you to treat the prophetic gift with disrespect and dishonor. So I don't think I got enough amens to continue. So we'll go ahead and kill the rabbit. But I will, I will say this. It is too simplistic to look on someone's poor response. I'm not talking about the bear now. Now I'm talking about Elijah running and wanting to die. It is simplistic and it's easy to look on someone's poor response without understanding the depth of the battle that they are facing. We, we, we need to be careful. If a man like Elijah walked into this room I, I hope we would do something more than just say, Elijah, how you doing? Good to have you with us. I, I hope we would respond the way they responded to Samuel. Whenever, you know, Samuel was like a circuit rider. He went from city to city. And on one occasion when Samuel came to the city he wasn't scheduled to be at, you know what they did? Oh, welcome, Samuel. Is all well? Everything all right? It, no, nobody do judgment here, are they? And Samuel said, all is well. We, I'm not talking about for flesh, but I'm talking about for God's order. There needs to be an order of response brought back into our worship of God. And that includes response to each other ought to be godly. Somebody asked Jim Baker when he had his trouble years ago, Jim, when did you stop loving God? And he looked at them with a puzzled expression. He said, I never stopped loving God. That wasn't why I messed up. I didn't stop loving God. I stopped fearing God. Well, 
Maybe we'll just quit and pick it up next week. Okay, we'll keep going. <laughs> we tend to define a life by snapshots rather than videos. You remember the old days when you'd have to send your film off and have it developed? You, you kids don't know. It used to be film in the camera. And you'd take either 12 or 24 or 36 pictures. Then you'd send it off. And a week later, it'd come back and you'd look at, you know. And you would catch people. You'd say, smile, and you'd catch them when they were going. I mean, it looked like night of the living dead. They looked like zombies. A half second before, a half second after would have been perfect. But you catch them at their worst moment. Now we just delete it if we have any sense of decency, and we take another picture. We keep on going. But... uh, We have a tendency to look at people in Scripture that way. We tend to take one snapshot and we try to interpret their life on the basis of one snapshot when there's a whole video that tells the truth. Let me tell you what this man had faced in three and a half years. We see that he's called out of Tishba, and Tishba was a backwards place. Chuck Swindoll called it the armpit of Israel. And he came out of Tishba. He's called to appear before the court of the king, and he has a message for Ahab. And guys, this was, this was not a picture of great opportunity for him. I doubt it was something he wanted to do. In fact, during this same era, there was a prophet that was told to go into the council of the king and deliver a message. This is what you say. And when you say it, Turn, don't wait, for a, don't wait for anything. As soon as you deliver the message, turn and run for your life. That's what it was like to approach the king, especially if you had news he didn't want to hear. Even a man like Nathan, who was close to David, knew that he had to craft. God had showed Nathan the sin of David. David had been hiding this for, for um, months and, and Nathan had enjoyed access to the king. But even as he realized his great sin of murdering Uriah and committing adultery with Bathsheba, he realized that he had to craft a story that would win the heart of David and help David understand the nature of his sin. Or David was liable to kill him. David, there were a lot of, well, not a lot, but there were several people in David's life that brought him a message and thought they were doing well. And they ended up going to meet God that same day. A couple of times, I don't even think it was fair, but you didn't approach the king lightly. And then to go and tell the king that Israel's economy is about to collapse and there's not going to be any rain because everything revolved around rain in Israel. That's why God said, I'll give you the former and the latter rain. If the rain doesn't come, you call me, well not call me, call upon me, ask me why it's not raining, and I'll tell you, and then you know what he said, then you can repent. God, God was saying, it's always going to be your fault. You can repent, and then I'll forgive you, and I'll send the rain. And he goes to King Ahab and explains, it's not going to rain until I say it will rain. It would have been bad enough if he had said, we're going to, it's not going to rain. I don't know how long it's going to be no rain, but you did it. But he goes and he says, we're not going to have any rain. You did it. 
and I know I'm a nobody. I may have come from the armpit of Israel, but it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. Then he is sent to the brook Kareth, where he is fed by ravens and drinks from the brook. Maven, Navin, the other ravens bring him food. And it says that the brook dried up. Loved ones, I want to tell you, it is traumatic when the thing God has used to sustain you. It's great when you've got the testimony. Ah, I hear I'm going to sleep listening to the gurgling brook. It's just another reminder that I'm God's favorite and the water will never stop. God will always take care of me. And you wake up one morning and the brook is down to a trickle. And the Bible says the brook dried up. And it's another sermon for another time. But loved ones, I want to tell you, it does something to you, not only to confront a crazy king, but it does something to you when everything that you seem to have depended on now is beginning to dry up. And you don't know what God's doing. You say, well, he had a widow prepared. He didn't know that. Not right away. And then God sends him to the home of a widow. Not the most brilliant PR move for a prophet to make, to move into a widow's house. At least she had a son that was there to give testimony that everything was as it ought to be. He is fed miraculously. God performs wonderful miracles during that time. Fairly quiet for Elijah, but in the public world, he was the object of continual manhunt hunts and investigations. The, the disappearance of Elijah strained Israel's foreign relationships. The Bible says that every king that surrounded, he sent an emissary. You are the one hiding Elijah. Are you giving refuge to the enemy of Israel? Every alliance he had began to break down and he made accusations of every king surrounding him. Imagine it happening here and, and we would be we, we would have trouble that we blamed on the Canadian prime minister or the Mexican president or, or, or nations that were near us. And we'd say, our problem is because of you. You're doing something that you ought not to do. And on top of all that, the economy was collapsing. When Ahab finally meets up with Elijah, he and one of his right-hand men are out in the field looking for water so they don't have to kill some animals. Now, there were heroes of the faith. There were men like Obadiah. Obadiah is kind of a forerunner of Daniel. He was a government worker, and um, he was a believer in God, and he did great things to hide and protect the prophets that did remain. Um, maybe, maybe it was of the 7,000 remnant servants, maybe prophets. We don't know. But finally, Ahab meets Elijah, after three and a half years, Obadiah, you know, Obadiah meets up with Elijah in the desert. And Elijah says, tell Ahab I'm going to meet him. And Obadiah says, no, Lord, I know what's going to happen. I know we've been looking for you for three and a half years. And if I go tell him you're here, the spirit of the Lord will pick you up and take you who knows where. And then I'm going to lose my life. He said, please, I'm on your side. Don't let me have to do this. And Elijah says, no, I'll meet him. I will meet him. 
You tell him to come. And Ahab came. Then that meeting led to a confrontation on top of Mount Carmel, there at the, the, the valley of Megiddo. And he is pitted 850 to 1. 400 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of the grove, 850 to 1. They build the altar, let the God who is God answer by fire. And you know the trauma and the drama of all of that. Now, of course, he won that battle. He destroys the false prophets. The people who won't say anything say the Lord, he is God. But even in the midst of that victory, the government doubles down on their determination to destroy him. Now, that's what he's been up against. So let's, let's run through this other part here so we can get right to the end, the, the life lessons. Number one, why did Elijah cave in? Pun intended. Why did he cave in? Why did he have this trauma and drama at the cave? Um, loved ones, I want to give you um, six reasons. I'm just going to refer to them. Um, but I want you to know, if you are here and you are struggling, if you are a servant of the Lord and you are wrestling with depression, I'm not going to ask you to lift your hands. I'm, I'm not even going to ask you to come forward to the altar, although you will certainly be allowed to do that. But I believe that some are here. You have walked with the Lord for a long time. You have seen the Lord do things that were exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. You would give your life as testimony to the faithfulness of God. But you would say, I have been going through a time, maybe the last three years, maybe the last year, maybe the last six months. I, I've been going through a time that is a time of such difficulty that I am struggling and it doesn't look like anything's going to change. I believe the Lord spoke to my heart to pray for folks with, with COVID. I mean, that doesn't take revelation. We pray for folks with COVID. But I, after I'd gone through my list of people that I knew had COVID, because I know we, we still have health issues in our, in, our, in our nation, the Lord really spoke to me, I felt very clearly, and said, I need you to pray persistently and consistently for those that have had spiritual COVID. Now, you say, oh, that's brilliant, Pastor. Well, then why did I say, huh, what? Spiritual COVID? And as I begin to pray, I, I begin to understand in, in my flawed mind, I begin to understand what I think the Lord was saying is that there has been a spiritual attack on my people that works like physical COVID, is spiritual COVID. And it's not so much the attack where you're sick for a few days, it's what you can lose your sense of smell, your sense of taste, the, the side effects. And loved ones, I believe that God has begun to put in my understanding that we have suffered more side effects spiritually than we might realize. We're, 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 we're over the crisis. We're not in the hospital. But things aren't like they were. They don't smell the same. They don't taste the same. You don't breathe the same. Something's different in your life. You might not can put your hand on it. 
And I believe it's just because of what the enemy has thrown against the people of God in these last days, or these days, the last few days, I should say. Now, I want you to do an honest evaluation today, and I want to give you six reasons that you may be struggling, that you may have lost some of your spiritual sense, that you may be depressed, you may not be hearing like you've been hearing, or you may not be seeing what you've always seen. And if we're not careful, we'll find a half dozen other things to blame it on, whether it's the church or the government or your wife or your husband or the job. I mean, and I'm not saying there aren't things in those realms that need to be addressed, but let's look at Elijah and see what threw him into a tailspin before we start looking for others. Here's number one. He had fought a long, relentless battle in difficult circumstances. Now we pray to put on the whole armor of God. We, and and I, I tell you that I do that every day. Not because I'm in a battle every day in, in a direct sense. I think in a broad sense we're all in a battle every day. But I, I, I pray for the armor of God every day because I don't know when I'm going to be in a battle. I don't know when I'm going to experience an, an attack. But do you know that it is not normal for you to be in a fight all the time? I mean, they're going to come. But you know what Paul said to, to the church at Ephesus through their pastor Timothy when he wrote to Timothy? He said, when you come together, pray for authorities, for kings, for those that are in leadership positions. Why? Because God wants you to live quiet peaceable lives. Well, I wish he'd told me that. I, I hadn't had any of those since Eisenhower was in office. Well, I'm just telling you, Paul said to Timothy, pray for the government. Pray for your atmosphere because what God wants is for you to live quiet, peaceful lives. But sometimes we're in a fight. Sometimes we're in a battle. You remember Paul said this. Y'all still with me? In Ephesians 6, he says, In the day of trouble, you will have days of trouble where you have to stand. Put on the armor and stand in the days of trouble. And depending on which version you read six times, he tells us to stand in that day of trouble. Stand, 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 stand. Stan, he wrote to the Corinthians and he said, I'm giving you some advice that you won't have to do all the time, but for the present distress, the day of trouble, the day of battle, the day of a war. And loved ones, they come and I want to say this to you. When you are in a long, relentless battle with difficult circumstances, it can eventually wear you down. And I'm afraid, depending on our personality, some of us have just said, well, this is just the way life is. I've just got to fight. I've got to be vigilant and I've got to be diligent like Paul and Peter said. Well, you do, but there is that balance of life. And you need to realize that there's a time to fight. There's a time to to. To, to, to rest. But when you are in a long fight, 
Before you know it, it can wear you out emotionally. Here's the second reason he caved in. His enemy was powerful and completely controlled the narrative in society. Elijah wasn't saying, well, I represent this half and Ahab, you represent that half. No, he was in society that was utterly, completely, smotheringly so controlled by Ahab and Jezebel and they controlled the narrative. Everything that whenever the, the Israelites turned on their TV to the 24-hour news channel, everything had to be um, analyzed, contrived, and, and spun by Jezebel's court. Whenever the great sin against Naboth, when they took his vineyard, when that occurred, listen to what happens. And it is a government conspiracy from beginning to end that twists everything. And even though everybody with one eye and half sense knew what Ahab and Jezebel were doing, the official position is that Naboth's the bad guy and he deserves to lose his land. It's hard to fight when your enemy seems to be completely in control and controlling the narrative. Um, have you ever gone to the principal's office when you were a kid to find? <laughs> I think we've got some folks who want to come to the altar here. Uh, and you get there and not only do you have to face the principal, but the principal has called in the only three teachers in school that don't like you. She didn't call in anybody that was on your side. It was a stacked deck. That's the way it was in Israel. Let me, let me take that a little bit deeper. Here's number three. Elijah was incorrectly regarded to be the cause of the nation's trouble. Israel was on the brink of starvation. Israel was on the brink of collapse. And when Ahab meets him, this is what he says. So there you are the troubler of Israel. This is your fault. And loved ones, some of you are the only voice to your family, to your neighborhood. Somebody may be listening. You're the only voice to your church or your small group. And no matter what kind of dealings God is bringing to the table, you are the problem. Here you are, the troubler of Israel. Now, let me tell you how that can get worse. It's not only bad enough to be considered the problem when you're not the problem, but the worst thing, number four, is to know the truth but find out nobody's interested in the truth. Number four, he knew the truth, but there was almost no appetite in Israel for the real truth. He knew the truth. There you are, you troubler of Israel. And what was Elijah's response? It's not I who have troubled Israel, but you and your father's house. You have forgotten and forsaken the commandments of the Lord. But nobody picked up on that. Nobody. Let me... Please, I see another rabbit that needs chasing. You need to understand, loved ones, because some of you are so noble, and I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. I mean, you are noble in your service to the Lord, and you don't want to whine. 
But you need to understand it is exhausting to carry the burden of the Lord when there's little or no support from the people you're ministering to. I mean, that may be in, in a family, may be in a church, may be in a business, may be in a, in a political realm. But when you're carrying the burden of the Lord and there's no support for it, you know, I, I, I know what it's like to have a heavy burden, but man, I want to tell you, the lo- every time somebody says, Pastor, thank you, or Pastor, we believe you, or Pastor, we love you, man, that's like somebody coming alongside and carrying the burden. But when nobody does that, and, and some of you, you're facing that. Even on Mount Carmel, when he says, how long will you halt between two opinions? If Baal be God, then serve him. But if the Lord be God, then serve him. The Bible, you know, I thought, boy, that's powerful. That's powerful. And what does it say? And the people answered him not a word. My daddy used to tell about a mule that starved to death, even though there was plenty of food around. He said there was a pile of hay over here. It looked wonderful. There was a pile of hay over here, looked wonderful, and he just couldn't decide which one to go to. That's where the word halt comes from. He would do this and halt and do this and halt. And he said he starved to death halting between two bales of hay. I mean, I don't know that that was true, but it's the language that Elijah was, was using. Israel's sin was along three lines. And man, this sounds too, too familiar Number one, they had abandoned the covenant. That means they had no regard for the word. The word was analyzed. The word was marginalized. The word was overlooked. The word was disregarded. They had abandoned the covenant of God. The second thing he said that they did, they had torn down the altars. And that means the teachings, the liturgy, the holy living that Israel had been accustomed to had been abandoned. The word is nothing. Holy living is nothing. And they had killed the prophets. It was a time that was described this way. Good was called evil and evil was called good. Light was called darkness and darkness was called light. And I want to tell you, we've seen it happen in Israel and I'm afraid that we're seeing it happen in Western civilization right now. The people of God are first questioned then they are ridiculed, then they are marginalized, and the state we're at right now is we are villainized. We are the problems. At first, eh, there's another opinion here. Then it moves from that to you are frail and weak-minded, you need a crutch, you are ridiculed. You're not going to tell us how to live, you're marginalized, and now we need to move from old traditions and outdated religions that are holding our society back. Now we are villainized. That's number four. Now, okay, let's, let's catch up. Long, difficult battle with no let up, a powerful enemy controlling the narrative and society. You are blamed for the problem. You have no arena of defense. You can't discuss anything. And number five, there was a series of demanding events with no time for personal recovery in between. Loved ones, most of us can take just about anything 
that the devil would throw at us if we have a chance to get a good deep breath in between the events. My baseball coach used to say, he said, you can give, he said a pitcher can give up a dozen hits in a game as long as they're scattered. Scatter those hits over nine innings, you can win the game. But if you give up a dozen hits in an inning, you've lost. And he was just having hit after hit after hit. And then number six, the days when people regarded the prophet as a servant of the Lord was generally over. The Bible says that when Samuel died, the people mourned for him. There was a time of national mourning for Samuel as there should have been. But now Elijah is missing and there is just increasing anger at him. No mourning, just anger. You know, in the book of Revelation, when the two witnesses are finally put to death by the hand of Antichrist, it says that when they are put to death, that it's a time when people in society give gifts to one another. It's like Christmas. Why? Because the prophetic voices are finally silenced. Okay, now, that's what got him in the cave. What did God do in the cave? Let's, let's give this five minutes and then we'll wrap it up. Or let me put it this way. We're circling the airport. <laughs> here's, here's the first thing God did. And, and guys, this is a sermon in and of itself. You need to work on this. Whenever you are at your lowest, the first thing God may tell you to do is go to bed. Get some rest. Most of us aren't designed to function on three hours sleep a night. Um, I, I, would, I would say this. This is what the, the psalmist meant when he said, it's vain for you to rise up early and to stay up late and eat the bread of sorrows for God gives his beloved sleep. Now, loved ones, sometimes wisdom tells you it's, you get up early because the same, the same book of wisdom the, the, or books of wisdom Tell us that uh, there are those that just, oh, a little, just a little more sleep, a little more sleep. You know, wake up, you sluggard. There's a time to get up and get your work done. We know that. That verse where he says it's vain for you to rise up early is not God's permission for you to be unable to keep a job because you want to sleep all day. But when you take it in its context, this is what he said. He said, don't stay up later than you ought to. Don't get up earlier than you need to because of your anxiety and worry. God gives you sleep. He gives you sleep. And we say, yeah, the Lord, Lord, help me go to sleep. Help, help me to get some sleep. No, I, I think the context of that verse is that God has given you sleep. It's not that you need a good night's sleep that he gives you, although he certainly does that. God wants us to understand part of our spiritual existence, he has given us sleep. And some of us just need to sleep. I think it's the Living Bible in Proverbs. It says, discouragement breed, breeds faulty reasoning. You and I don't think straight when we're tired. You say, well, I, so I do some of my best thinking when I'm tired. Well, I challenge you to get some rest and see how much better your thinking gets. Ask your wife if she thinks your best thinking is when you're tired. 
Number one, the angel of the Lord said, get some rest. If it had been me, I would have said, well, angel, I don't need rest. I need you to give me an escape route. Give me a map with a couple of paths I can take. Uh, I, got, I got this crazy woman chasing me. And the angel says, get some sleep. Then he gets some sleep and he wakes up. And that's when the biscuit was there. So the second advice that God gives us, and I really believe this, friend, because I've seen it work. The first thing is get some sleep. The second thing is eat right. Get some food. Let it be the right kind of food. I'm not, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a health nut. You can tell that by looking at me. But I will say this. Um, we do need to, I, I, I'll put it this way. Through the years, I've paid the price for not eating well. And I'm trying to eat better now. And I expect no condemnation if you walk into Blaze Pizza and see me in there. I'm, I, but I'm talking about the, the weight of it, you know. Loved ones, we need to, to, to fuel our mind with sleep. And we need to fuel our body with something good to eat. The third thing that God did, he began to speak to him about his needs. He said, now tell me again, what's going on here? God needs you to fuel your mind, your will, your emotions. What you are feeling matters. We Pentecostals have been taught that you ignore your feelings and just go with faith. God gave you feelings and when we don't pay attention to those feelings, we don't often know what we've got ourselves into. Oh, I know faith triumphs over feelings. I know that. But feelings have a place. That's why when you get in an argument with your wife, don't say you shouldn't feel that way. Because those feelings play a very important role, whether they're right or wrong. Let God reveal your heart to you and then let God reveal his heart to you. Listen to God's voice. Um, and and I, I will just simply say this, God solved his depression by taking care of your body, take care of your soul, take care of your spirit and get busy again doing what I've called you to do. You get busy, but listen, you work under his yoke. He said, any of you that are weak and heavy laden, you're weary and heavy laden, any of you depressed, any of you worn out, he said, come to me, but what did he say? And take my yoke upon you. You'll find rest, but you'll find rest not from work, you'll find rest in work because you will learn to labor under my yoke instead of your yoke. Okay, boy, that's good, but we've got to stop. No, we don't. We just need to go to the Christian life lessons. We need to stop with that part. Let me, let me, now you say, my word, there's eight of these things. I know, I know. But I will only speak on each point in then seconds. Again, this is, this is a map for you. You can stop at any one of these. And, and work on it yourself. But here are the Christian life lessons. Number one, and this is just kind of a repeat of what we said at the beginning. Don't make the mistake of being simplistic and judgmental. Don't embrace judgmental analysis when a servant of God is going through tough places. In other words, if you see, I, I, was, I, was, I, I was shocked, then I got angry. 
And then after I repented of the anger, I was so grieved. I, it, it's nobody in our, in our church, but I was online and I was looking up some information and there was a Christian website that with a big headline talked about Benny Johnson, Bill Johnson's wife that's fighting cancer. And I, I don't remember the exact wording. I don't want to reserve any space in my brain for that kind of foolishness. But it was something like charismatic preacher healer's wife unable to be healed in spite of their charismatic prophecies. And that I was shocked that anybody would say that. Who in God's name, who lives by God's name, would bring that kind of pain and grief to somebody suffering with cancer and sickness. And, and then I got angry because Lovelands, I, I want to tell you, it is, I don't even want to call them my brothers. They may be, but I don't want to call them my brothers. Anybody that would take someone's grief and, and rub their faces in their pain because I don't agree with them theologically. I hope that somebody that loves the leaders of that movement and has access will slap the snot out of them. I'm not going to do it because then I'm operating in the same spirit they're in. But, but, I'm, but I'm telling you, we, we need to be careful before we think that we are God's appointed judge over someone else's path. I, I, I don't agree with everything that comes out of Bethel. And some of you, that'll upset you. And no, I don't want to meet with you about it. I don't agree with everything that comes out of Bethel. But my God, that is my brother and my sister. And I'm going to pray for healing. I'm going to pray for the hand of the Lord to move. I'm not going to take the approach that that other group did. No, don't make the mistake of being judgmental when you see a servant of God going through tough places. But can I also tell you this? There is somebody I'm extremely critical of, and I'm going I'm to share the name with you. I, I just feel like to purge myself, I've got to share the name of somebody that I have said some of the nastiest things about. Uh, I have said he's not worth a pile of worm dung. I've said you ought to know better. God's been so good to you. How can you be so stupid? I've really said this about one of God's servants. And, and, and I get so angry. I just, I'll just tell you his name. His name's Stephen Chitty. <laughs> Loved ones, it's not just others we need to be careful about. But I want to tell you, you need to be careful about the way you talk about you. You need to quit treating you like you're your own worst enemy. Because we're going to find out that Elijah was a man just like us. But at least he prayed. Let's go on. Number two, the greater the conflict, the greater the need for rhythm and balance. You say, what do you mean rhythm and balance? I teach pastors all the time that the, the toughest part of pastoring a church, you have to learn rhythm and pressure. Rhythm and pressure, that's the only way you can pastor a church. You find your rhythm, you live under pressure, and it produces life. There's a rhythm of life that all of us have to achieve, and it's the balance between worship and rest, 
worship and rest, and work and play. Now, you might think it'd be work and rest. No, no, no. Rhythm of life is the balance between worship and rest and work and play. And you've got to understand the greater the conflict, the greater the need for you to be balanced. You've got to understand there are times you've got to step aside. There are times you've got to turn your phone off. There are times you not only step aside, there are times you step away. So the greater the conflict, the greater the need for balance, which leads to number three, the greater the victory, the greater the need for rhythm and balance. You say, well, which is it? In my tough times or my easy times? When do I need balance more? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, baseball coach told me one time, he said, there's two things you got to know about baseball. They are unalterably true. They are always true. He said, here's number one, good hitting always beats good pitching. Good hitting always beats good pitching. What's the second thing? Good pitching always beats good hitting. And they sound like contradiction to say the greater the conflict and the greater the victory, but they're not conflicting, they are complementing. Loved ones, listen to me. Sometimes because of your personality, it's, it's just a personality thing. It's the way God made you. Some people handle pressure magnificently. Uh, there are people that if I have confidence in them, it's when they're going through tough times because I'll look at them and I'll say they handle trouble magnificently. And then there are other people that when trouble comes, they just wilt. They just, you know, it's like Ernest P. Worrell getting ready for his shot. And he says, I can take this. I'm a man. I'm not going to whine. And the moment the needle touches his arm, he starts screaming. He confesses that he is Joseph Mengele. He confesses that he stole the Lindbergh baby. You know, he just wilts. And there are people like that. But there are other people that can handle victory. They have, they have amazing humility. And they, they understand the big picture. But there are other people that victory is their kryptonite. So you've got to understand, know yourself. And if you're the kind of person that collapses under pressure, ask God to help you when the pressure comes. Ask him to help you stand in the day of trouble. If you're the kind of person that can't handle victory, ask God when the victory is won to keep you focused. You see, times of trouble, it's easy to understand how people collapse. Trouble, 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 threat, threat, threat. But sometimes success can do the same thing. People let up and it's, they don't know how easily it is to forget how utterly dependent on the Lord we are. I'll tell you this, some of you are made this way, some of you are made this way, but most of us will experience both. Depending on what we've been through, we'll be very strong in a tough time or we'll be very weak in a bad time. I, th I think with Elijah, I think he was very strong, but I think he had been through so many battles over and over and over again. Whew. And then I think he had unrealistic expectations when the victory came. Um, I, I've, I've, 
through the years, I've been on committees that helped ministers or ministers' spouses that have gone through trouble and they had to go through what we call rehabilitation. They have to come up here before a committee and the committee deals with it. And I, I, it's, it's not fun. It's, it's not something I enjoyed. The only reason I did it is the hope that I could help. But I will tell you this, hands down, the vast majority of men and women of God who had moral and ethical problems, when they had it, they were not low. They were at the height of their career. They had forgotten how important it was to utterly depend on the, war, on the Lord. I, it's like David. David went, went through battles that are unbelievable, but the Lord sustained him. It was incredible. And at the height of his career, the Bible brings us to the opening of a chapter, and it says this, and at the time when kings go to war, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, it's all right for an aged king to stay behind. I mean, we see that happening. There's nothing wrong with an aged king assigning the battle to his head general. Nothing wrong with that. But David was a man about 40. He, he was a man in the prime of life. And he had no business staying behind. So instead of being on the lines with his troops, he was on the roof of his palace and his eyes fell upon Bathsheba, a beauty that did not belong to him. Nothing wrong with a man's eyes beholding beauty as long as it's his to behold, his wife. And David fell, and the worst calamity that touched David's life touched him because he let his guard down because of the victories that he had experienced. Let's hurry on. I'm gonna give you number four. A trickle charge is usually better than a jump start. Loved ones, I thank God for battery cables and jump starts. I thank God. And I also know I'm a, I have been known to give illustrations that are based on old technology. That's what happens when you live to be as old as I am. Technology changes and you don't know it. I was trying to explain something the other day to somebody about a distributor cap. And then I realized there hasn't been a distributor cap on a car that this person would know about in their entire life. But anyway, when I was in seminary, I worked at Sears Automotive and I was inside selling parts and selling tires. I, 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 I was thankful for my job, but I wanted to be out in the shop. I grew up in a tire store. My dad owned a tire store. I loved the smells of a tire store. I loved the smells of of new tires and every what you do is you put your order in then you put it in one of the tube things and then it would go out I always took mine out because I knew that I could have two or three minutes of, of of just smelling and there was a man out there that you've heard of a horse whisperer Mr. Edmund was a car whisperer he knew about anything that was wrong with a car and there had been an electrical problem again old technology probably it's changed but old technology, I, I was listening to him. It, I had tried to help the customer. And I said, I think what it is in this. And Mr. Edmund said, no, that's, that's what it looks like. But what it is is this. And I said, well, we can just jumpstart him and he can be on his way. We, we fixed the problem. 
And Mr. Edmund said this, he said, well, we can jumpstart him. We use both jumpstart and trickle charge, but the trickle charge preserves the life of the battery. And I said, but that means he'll have to wait several hours. He said, yes, sir, you can come back at closing or, or better if you'll wait, come back in the morning. And I thought that's not taking care of the customer. And uh, he said, a jump start will get him right on his way, but a slow charge will keep him from being back in here later. And loved ones, I am so thankful that God knows how to do a jump start. I am so thankful that God knows how to turn water into wine in a millisecond. I'm so glad that we have word, spirit, and power conferences where we have, and we have prayer tunnels. And we, I'm so thankful for God's jump starts. But I tell you what I found out. When I want God to turn the water to wine, he often tells me to go plant a vineyard. Let me explain to you what I mean. He's on his way to Horeb. It's a 200 mile trip. That's a long way when you're walking. God gave him 40 days. Now you say, well, it was 200 miles walking. Yeah, but you, you've got to understand that even walking at casual speed, he could have made it in less than 10 days. If he went at a, at a moderately slow speed, he could have made it in 10 to 12 days. Why did God allow 40 days? Because God knows on our journey to wholeness, there are going to probably be several stops along the way. There are going to probably be several rest areas. You see, in our Pentecostal theology, we believe that God can do more in five seconds than somebody else can do in five weeks. And that's true. But we forget that God doesn't always give us the jump start. That's why we, we, we give testimony of God's great delivering power, but we end up in that same cycle, maybe weeks or months later, God may give us a trickle charge. God may with, tell us to withdraw from ministry. Uh, through the years, I know how hard it is to tell somebody, I want my ministry back. I want my job back. I want to do this. I want to do that. And you know that what they need is to let that trickle charge fill them. It's not punishment, but they need the trickle charge. Like I said, God will sometimes turn water into wine, but he will also have us plant vineyards. Here's number five. Elijah was thinking in terms of a battle, not a war. You see, he thought this was battle of the gods. I, I read a sermon about the encounter on Mount Carmel, and it was called the battle of the gods. And that's exactly what it was. It was the battle of the gods, but it wasn't the war of the gods. That was going on before and the war would go on later. Uh, I, I remember I pastored a church one time. We, we survived from month to month. We survived from week to week. We, sometimes our decision was which utility bill will we not pay this month. It was, it was such a tough time. People were as good as gold, but we just didn't have resources. And so we lived week to week. We lived month to month. And then every, oh, I can't remember, it seemed like it was every quarter or every six months, we had a bond payment. And we couldn't possibly make bond payments. But God helped us with the bond payments every time. It was just an amazing story. And it was, it was something, I mean, to not be able to make your bond payments a big deal. And God did this and he did that and he did the other. He did the miraculous 
And one time I, I suggested to God several things he could do and he didn't do it. And I said, the way my mind works, I, I, I said, I can't think about this anymore. I can't pray about this anymore. There's an old storeroom. I'm going to just go do some physical labor, clear it out, see if that'll help me think any better. And clearing out, now this, this tell you how long this storeroom had been cluttered. There were newspapers in it from the Vietnam War. And, and this was in the 80s. And I'm clearing through there and I, I'm, I'm just thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I come across some boxes and I say, trash, 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 trash. And I look at this in the box. I grabbed them up. I took them to the bank. I said, can you tell me what this is? I said, I think I know what this is, but I need you to tell me what this is. And they said, yeah, these are bonds um, for, that your church from your fundraising program. I said, what, what does this mean? I said, did, did someone go into that room and die and we owe them for their bonds? And they did some research and they said, oh, no, 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 no. Um, and we owed something like $8,000. We did 8,000 might've been 8 million as far as I was concerned. And he said, no, it looks like the church bought these. These are fully mature and you're owed the money. And I thought, well, that's great. I have 8,000 dollars due, $4,000 due, $8,000 due. I can't pay any of it. And he said, you don't understand. You owe yourself this money. These are your bonds. They're due this quarter. So the bottom line, you don't owe anything. And I went out of there thinking, God, this is amazing. But I went home that night. I was so exhausted. God got us through again, another miracle. But do you know it is exhausting to dodge bullets? all the time? You say, well, what happened? When we finally got to the point we could pay our bills. It took the pressure off. And I was exhausted from God winning battles when what I needed was God to win a war. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go on. When I say that he was thinking in terms of battle, not a war, we need to understand that like Elijah, we can think, if we're thinking of a battle instead of a war, we can think a miraculous battle ought to turn everything on the right direction. And it doesn't. God knows the breaking point. God knows that there may be great victories, but it's not enough to turn the whole thing. But he does know one day will be enough to turn the whole thing. Number six, Elijah learned that God not only allows a venting of our frustrations, but he also deals with us tenderly as he does so. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that love him. Uh, loved ones, I am going to preach a sermon about this later. We need to understand that we have the right to vent, but it needs to be very selective, and we don't need to be accusatory toward God. And we need to let it be done with thanksgiving. More later. Here's number seven. Elijah was reminded that nothing can replace the presence of God. Now, God's question, the same, both times. Elijah's answer, the same, both times. But something happened. When he came to the mouth of the cave and he heard the gentle whisper, it was like God passing by like he did for Moses. One thing happened 
that even though the words were the same, it changed everything. It says he took his cloak and wrapped it around his head. That was a sign of humility. That was a sign of him humbling himself before God. Loved ones, sometimes your complaint will be the same. Sometimes your situation will be the same. But the only thing that changes is that now you've recognized how God needs to be worshiped in the midst of all of it. I always think if God will change my circumstances, I'll be fine. But I've found if God will change my heart, even the circumstances will work out. See, some of us have adopted anger. Some of us have adopted frustration. And, you know, God needs to take care of this. Well, God wants to take care of this. But you need to wrap your head up in humility. And that leads to the last thing. And then we're done. Even deep spirituality does not eradicate fleshly weakness. When I get so angry with myself and call myself names, I say, Lord, they need a better pastor than me. They need a pastor that lives what he preaches better than I do. And I go through this whole tirade. You know what's at the heart of that is God's done so much, I ought to do better. God's done so much, I ought to know better. God's done so much, I ought to act better. And that's probably true, but that, that is loaded with problems, and I'll tell you why. Because we forget the key to Elijah's greatness, and it was this. He was exactly like us, but he prayed. He was weak like us, but he prayed. He fell into self-pity, but he prayed. When James was trying to tell people, pray even when it doesn't feel like it's making any difference. Do right even when it doesn't feel like it's making any difference. That's what Elijah did. In the New Living Translation, it reads like this. See, when he said, I'm no better than my father's, it's like we said earlier, his thoughts were, I thought I had a handle on this. I've got all the lessons of those that failed before me. And you know what I'm finding out? I am not one bit better than they were. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Because the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And I can imagine the congregation James was writing to saying, yeah, that's for you, James. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what you say, you know. I mean, your prayers... I mean, you're a half-brother to Jesus. You, you, you kind of got some ends to the king that we don't have. Great power and produces wonderful results. Not my prayer. But then he says, I know what you're thinking. Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, None fell for three and a half years. When he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. NIV says Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed, Philip's translation, tremendous power is made available through a good man's earnest prayer. Do you remember Elijah? He was a man like us, but he prayed earnestly that it should not rain. 
In fact, not a drop fell on the land for three and a half years. Then he prayed again. The heavens gave the rain. The earth sprouted with vegetation as usual. Loved ones, this is where I want to bring you. I believe God may be taking you on a 40-day journey to Horeb. And you may have stops all along the way. God may talk to you about the way you sleep, the way you eat. God may talk to you about hearing his voice and and, you know, we, we, ha we have trouble all the time with people that think God is not moving because they don't see him moving the way they want to see him moving. God may take us all to the woodshed on a half dozen issues, but at the bottom of the line, uh, bottom line, at the end of the day, this is what we've got to look at. We are all flawed as was Elijah, but even though he was flawed, he prayed. He was weak, but he prayed. He was frustrated, but he prayed. He was discouraged, but he prayed. And if you and I don't get our heads wrapped around this today, we're going to spend the rest of our lives chasing after somebody that we think has the right to pray. Or we're going to spend our lives trying to reach some level of perfection where we think we've earned the right to pray. Or we can understand that even when we are as low as Elijah, we pray. And God does phenomenal things at the lowest points in our lives. So pray, 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 pray. Your life can be better. Sure, mine can be better. Sure, I'm not telling you don't seek for improvement. In 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul was writing to the slaves of Corinth, he said, I know how difficult it is to be a slave, to be under the control of another man when you only want to be under the control of the Lord. He says, this is my advice to you. If you can get out of your slavery, you know, if you can buy it, if you can work for it, if you can trade, if you can get out from under slavery, he said, do it by all means. If you can make something better in your life, do it. But I love the rest of the sentence there in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, but if you can't get free, understand that even if you're a slave, you're free in the Lord. And if you're not a slave, understand that you may be free in the flesh, but you're the Lord's servant. He was saying, don't limit what you think God can do because of the adversity of your circumstance or the weakness of your circumstance or the weakness of your flesh. Loved ones, I know that I don't think straight all the time. I know that I, I, I don't pray like I need to pray some of the time. I know, I know everything about me, but I also know God gives me an invitation to pray. Some things happen when we pray that don't happen if we don't pray. Therefore, if I don't pray, then something in my life or the life of someone I love goes undone. Loved ones, pray. Well, pastor, I've got this weakness. Pray. Pastor, I've failed so many times. Pray. Pastor, I, my circumstances in my life are horrible. Pray. In fact, you can't give me a good reason why not to pray but I can give you dozens of reasons that you need to pray. Father, we're, we're out of time. Help us today. I'm gonna to ask ministry team to come forward. 
And we ask in Jesus' name, we ask in Jesus' name that you would help us, Lord. Father, if there's anybody listening online or anybody in Brown Chapel or here in the sanctuary that does not know Jesus as Lord, we run to you. We run to you. We run to you. We run to you. And we ask you to give us the wonderful gift of eternal life. Father, for those of us that are struggling, for those of us that we may never admit it to anybody, but we have thought we'd be better off dead than alive. We feel that life is so unfair that we'd welcome an express ticket to heaven. Father, we're yours. You can take us anytime. But Father, help us to pray and help us to realize that it's all because of you.